0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. This, this, okay. Hopefully, you had a chance to get a handout. We are um, doing the Doctrine of the Holiness of God, Part Two, today. Um, boy, people have different sized heads. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like the anyhow. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Every time I put this on, I'm like, wow, my head is a different size than this. So. Anyhow, it's the wonder of the image of God, right? Okay. Uh, Just seeing if you're awake. All right, well, looking forward to um, covering this this morning. Um, A few, well, just kind of a housekeeping thing or what's going on with Discipleship Hour update, which you may have seen in Ryan's email. It's also in the bulletin. Um, As we think about Discipleship Hour Um, we've changed the name for the adults from Sunday school to discipleship hour because we feel like that better conveys um, this isn't just a class. Um, A lot of us have done a lot of classes, and um, classes have their purpose. But the church's purpose is discipleship, and that involves knowledge, but that's knowledge towards life and growth. And so discipleship hour is just kind of conveying that we're setting aside an hour toward instruction in discipleship. It takes all kinds of forms. The worship service is an exercise in discipleship as well, Uh, but it just keeps that first and foremost. So anyhow, if you're wondering um, why do we keep using that word, that's just something we're trying to instill in our thinking as we just think about this time. Um, It also shows some of the importance of, of this. Like The elders really value this time. When we think of the instruction for the church. We think first and foremost of Sunday morning and all that goes into that from the readings, the prayers, the songs, and the sermons. Like that's all top priority in our week. Um, But then this hour, we always view in conjunction with that and supplementing and uh, helping that. And then there's all these other things that help that as well. Community groups, women's Bible study, um, one-on-one relationships, all those things are part of that growth. So anyhow, just... That wasn't in my notes, but that's that. Um, All that to say, though, when we think of how do we steward well this discipleship hour from 9 to 10 throughout the year, you know, 52 of those a year... We think uh, a mix of both doctrinal things and practical life things, um, just the whole diet of building out what may take us extra time to get to when we're preaching through books. You know, as we go through Romans, we're going to be in Romans for a while, and there are certain topics Romans is not hitting and and spending in-depth time covering. So discipleship hour is an opportunity to do that. All that to say, when we think about doctrine for life— Our vision for that is to work our way through this book, and as I've mentioned before, it has 12 doctrines in it, and we'll just take three at a time. So we've done three, um, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of God, and doctrine of God's holiness. So that means we're going to take a break from that. We'll come back to Doctrine for Life after a time this year and move on in those doctrines, but it's this alternating diet of what we're covering. And so our next class is focusing on Um, a very practical but theologically weighty topic, um, making sense of forgiveness. And so you may have seen um, Ryan's blurb that's in the bulletin. Um, When you think about forgiveness, I'm not sure what comes to mind. I kind of think of one word, forgiveness and it's like we're supposed to do this as Christians we've been forgiven but that word in my mind often fails to deal with the complexity of what that looks like in a myriad of situations when you have this whole spectrum of the person you're interacting with whether they're an unbeliever or a believer whether they're repentant or unrepentant whether they're waffling in repentance what how deeply they've hurt you what that hurt looks like so this little word in my head um it needs to have a lot of wisdom packed into it. And for me, and the elders as we've been thinking about this, um, we, we've realized we've had a lot to learn, and we think it would be great to talk about as a congregation. So Brad Hambrick's book, Making Sense of Forgiveness, will walk us through that, and that's, that's our coming class that will start next week. And we plan to take 10 weeks on it. You may think, like, forgiveness, that could be three weeks. God forgave you, forgive other people, see you next week, um, you know, type thing. I think the 10-week nature of it shows what we're going to be doing. And um, it, it's really great, too. Jim Neuheiser, who was um, the main preaching elder here before, he um, he taught many times on forgiveness. Many of us... Learned that from him from preaching, from teaching, from basics class. He um, plugged this book, and one of the things that he says about Brad's book is he learned a lot in reading it. It filled out things that were missing. And um, that's that's how we've all felt as well. So I'm excited to go on that journey together. So um, that's that. Great. So that's next week. But before we get to that, we have this week which is continuing on in the doctrine of God's holiness or the holiness of God. We will talk about how that relates to our holiness a bit today. So let me just, um, why don't I pray and then I'll review. And then um, that way we can just, we can have the Lord's help and keep going. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to set aside some time in our lives to just look at your word and to think together about what it says about you and what it says about us, what it says about the nature of your love for us and the salvation that we have through Jesus. We know this whole morning is structured to help us do that. We pray that you'd help us as, as we do that during discipleship hour, considering especially your holiness. This doctrine that on the one hand fills us with fear and trembling and on the other hand, wonder and awe, and all those things work together perfectly um, through the salvation we have in the gospel. And so grow us in that, increase our faith and understanding this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we think about where we've been, I don't have anything on the other side, but there's no dent on this side, so I'm going to start there. Um, Yeah, it's more holy, more pure. Uh, There we go. Okay. So, anyone remember when we think about thanks, Matt? uh, When we think about holiness, what are the two things really contained in that word as we think about it biblically? And it's from last week. It's it's the otherness of God, the creator-creature distinction that exists. Like that's kind of one of the first and foremost things that we consider. Other or beyond, um, just far above, and there's a great divide. But then also the other part of holiness is purity. So there's this otherness, transcendence. Um, He's so different than us, and yet there's ways we'll talk about today in which we're like him. But then also everything about God is perfectly pure. And that's purity from... So it's it's he doesn't engage in bad things is the simple way to think about that, but the other part of God's holiness and purity is he fully engages all the time in what's good. Um, it's not just a withdrawing from; it's a spilling over of goodness toward, which is just amazing. Um, and anyhow, and so that's why there's this uh, this beauty to the holiness of God. In particular, is not only what he isn 't but the sheer delight of the goodness of a pure and holy love and justice and knowledge and power um, that 's just splendid as we perceive it through the eyes of faith and then the uniqueness of holiness was something that we talked about last week what what 's unique about holiness? Does anyone remember what what happens in it that doesn 't that doesn't happen to any other attribute in Scripture. Yeah. It's repeated three times. So, um, holy, holy, holy. It's the only one that's mentioned in that way. And so, repetition is underlining, highlighting in Hebrew thought, right? And so, God wants us, as he's revealed himself, to think of himself as first and foremost holy. And holiness, though, like all of his other attributes, is perfectly connected to all of the other attributes, right? So anything that we think about God, his knowledge, his power, his love, his justice, um, his aseity, his eternity, eternality, all those things are holy as well. They're other, beyond, and they're pure. And all of God's attributes um, aren't just pieces of him. God is simple in that he's... Contains no parts, and so we can't think, we can't start separating them from each other and prioritizing one above the other, but realizing that they all are perfectly together, and holiness is one of the preeminent ones to think about that way. Okay, so that's review from last week. Now, um, what's interesting as we think about how amazing holiness is you would think that it's an incommunicable attribute of God, wouldn't you? That it's something that only God has. But what's profound as we come to Scripture is holiness is actually a communicable attribute of God. And these are big words that we use just to lump observations about God from Scripture together. But a communicable attribute just means this. Divine attributes that are true of God— and also reflected in his image bearers in some way. Um, and so we think of things like um, the eternality of God, and that is incommunicable, right? We don't, we're not eternal beings. We are created beings, even though we live forever, in a sense. So those things are different. But when we think of things like love and justice and holiness even, these are things that we, like God, show in how we were created. So we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. And so that, that brings us to point number two on your handout. God, The holy God makes people holy. That's just an amazing thing. Um, it can be surprising that something that's so uniquely God, as far as holiness being the chief thing, in many ways he wants us to know about him, that that is something that we also share with him. And I think what's helpful as we think about holiness, is to consider the story, the biblical story of holiness. What's the narrative arc of our holiness in Scripture? And so as soon as we say that, we, um, we can jump into these um, categories, right? If, if someone were to ask you, what's the storyline of the Bible, where would it start, and I'm not passing the microphone around because these are quick answers. When we say more than three words, then I'll pass it around. How's that sound? It's like Trinitarian mic passing. So if it's less than three, it's okay. So we start with creation, right? And what's the next movement? Yeah, way later, there's the fall. No, not not that far, is it? Um, and then third, we move from the fall to this unfolding redemption, right? And then that takes us to consummation, right? There's different ways of saying these things. Does consummation have two Ms? It seems like it does. Okay, great, thanks. It's the consummate form of spelling it. Uh, Okay, boy, I need to dial it back, sorry. Uh. (laughs) Let's think about holiness and creation, right? We were created holy, Adam and Eve were holy in how they were created. As those created in God's image, they were created with creaturely holiness, and in a way that's different than the rest of creation, because it's tied to the fact that they were the image of God. Um, Herman Bavink just says, To be human is to be an image-bearer of God. Right? To be human is to be an image-bearer. Created in his likeness, and originally righteous and holy. Okay, so we have to remember when we were created, we were created as god 's image bearers to show his holiness in how we were and lived then fall that holiness was lost in the fall right um, and this includes what we primarily think about it ethical corruption right so when we think of when we think of god 's holiness, we can think of his um, uh, the the separate part is the, his, his ontology or, well, anyhow, this is just going to take us on a tangent. Never mind. I'll just keep it to saying simple thing. Um, in the fall, what was corrupted was, ethically, we started to do bad things, right? We did bad things, and we also failed to do good things. A twistedness ethically entered the picture. But there's also a positional, change right there's a positional change that happens and we see that in the narrative Um, Adam and Eve went from being people who were able to be where in the garden it's three words so I can it's okay to say out loud Adam and Eve were in the garden and that was okay remember from our Leviticus class what was the garden showing it was the holy temple presence of God. They were there dwelling with God in the holy of holies. They, and if something can go into the holy of holies, it is positionally holy, set apart, set apart for God's use. When sin, when they fell and sinned, and sin entered the world, that also created a positional unholiness. They were now part of the realm of the secular or the profane or the unholy and could not draw near to the garden. Right. And then we see this recapitulated, um, shown again and again in the tabernacle and in the temple, of how God provisionally put ways in which people could draw near, um, but those things were ultimately only pointing forward to the actual drawing near that could come through Jesus. Right. So ethically and positionally, we become unholy. Um, the image becomes marred. And then, redemption Um, brings about the restoration. It's a work of restoring the image, right? It's restoring the image of God that was lost. And by lost, I don't mean it's non-existent. It's just broken and corrupted. Um, And so as we think of redemption as this image-bearing restoration pursuit, then it helps us understand holiness as well. But um, Hear how salvation was to not only bring about forgiveness of sins, but it was also a mission to restore the image of God that has been corrupted. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator that restoration of the image of the creator is coming through the work of Jesus, the true image of God. Um, And so this restoration of the image that's happening in redemption, it's also restoring our holiness. And um, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, reminds us of this. Again, really like parallel to Colossians, so same ideas, but it, it makes holiness explicit. Um, You were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that's the condition we were in. And now, because of Christ's work, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, and then listen to what this is for, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So redemption is holiness being restored to us, And its holiness being restored to us in what was lost, both positionally uh, and ethically. Um, And uh, we'll talk more about that, I guess, but just keep that in mind. And so redemption isn't just to save us from sin. Redemption is also, the the goal of it, is to make us holy. Holy. Um, which is amazing to make us reflect and be holy like God is holy while still on this side of the creator creature distinction, and so just hear these words that talk about the the goal of this redemption and how holiness is a part of it ephesians one four even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, election unto holiness, and blamelessness. Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Um, that, that glorious bride of Christ restored is what God is at work doing. And so then if we think of the bottom line of the story, that restoration of holiness doesn't happen completely this side of glory, does it? but it happens at the consummation um holiness is then confirmed it's it's regained image restored but then what's fascinating about the confirmation consummation is the confirmation it can't be lost again um and that's a beautiful thing that again I know I keep saying this but we'll also kind of talk about it in our next point um but the end of the story right is a holy God, with His holy people, in a holy place, new creation, forever. That's the goal. So it's this holy story, right? Um, does that make sense of the the story of holiness? Any? Um, well, if I open up questions, I'll just say we're going to talk about that in a minute. So why don't I just do this subpoint? And then we'll open it for questions, right? Because the the two are kind of weaving together. This part then is how we're made holy, right? So this is the story, but then how does this look in the life of the Christian? What are the stages of it? Um, Holiness for God's people has a threefold aspect. And... I don't know if I grabbed a handout this morning. Did I put the three things on it? They're there. Okay, so I can feel less pressure to write them. Um, The first, we're positionally holy, right? And so we are made holy in Christ, um, and we are now set apart to God. And so what this really, I would say, is doing is it's dealing with the, um, the positional change that's happened in the fall, right? The, the beauty of God's redemptive story is everything that was lost gets regained and then confirmed. It's, the end is better than the beginning, um, but, but nothing's really lost along the way, which is just amazing. So positionally holy, we are made holy in Christ. We're now set apart to, to God. Every believer is a saint, is a holy one. And that word's not an accident in Scripture. It's showing that the confirmation of all that Israel was to be is now, through being united to Christ by faith in him, is now what our standing is. We are the holy ones of God. Um, And that's because of the work of Christ. And a a saint is one who's separated from the world positionally and consecrated to God. Consecrated meaning setting apart for God's use, right? Right? Um, like Adam and Eve, were created to be originally. And so all believers are positionally holy by virtue of their calling as saints. And this happens really in justification. You're declared to be a holy one. Um, It could also be the positional aspect of sanctification. But these are all benefits that come through union with Christ. And so as we think about this positionally, when we hear we're now holy ones, what does that mean Um, It means we are now transferred from the realm of darkness and profane and common, the outside of the garden to which we were cast. And now we are brought into the holiness of God to be able to commune with him in that way. We go from being people who were kicked out of the temple of Eden to those who now are temples of the living God. That's how profoundly he has made us holy. Holy enough that God himself can dwell in us by the Spirit. Um, And that happens at salvation. That's not just when you get your quiet times really nailed down. Right? Um, Okay, so positionally that happens. Now I want to think just for a moment about what this means because when I hear set apart... um, I think of lots of Christian movements throughout history that withdraw from people. (laughs) Anyone else think that way? You are set apart. And basically it means, well, here's, here's what we need to realize. The Old Testament was showing holiness to the people of God in a typological way, in a way that was illustrating for them the profundity of unholiness and uncleanness and corruption of all that existed because of the fall. And so when we look at the Old Testament, when we see holiness and the holiness laws, what are they primarily like what do we notice the most about them, especially the ceremonial parts of them? They're things like don't touch, um, don't eat, don't go, don't welcome, <laughs> right? They're the, the sta- here are the boundaries. And so things like foods and fluids and conditions and people can make you unclean and can even make you unholy in various ways, depending how that particular law is is working out. And so we sometimes may think that that which was made to teach is now what New Testament holiness looks like. It's not that that was untrue. It's just that something greater has come that frees us up to not be bound to interacting typologically, or in these things that teach. And so as we come to the New Testament, the most striking difference, one theologian says, is the virtual eclipse of the purely ceremonial aspects of holiness. So the do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, we're not finding those in the New Testament anywhere near the way we found them in the Old Testament. And what now floods the page is this speaking of Holiness as being able to be conformed to the very nature of God, which is just absolutely amazing. So ethical conduct comes to the fore, and separateness of don't touch and don't taste seems to fade off the page as the ceremonial law um, finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so... um, This is what we see radically encountered in the life and ministry of Jesus, right? The Pharisees, it's blowing their minds because holiness to them is still connected to the type, if we are to be holy, then we must stay away from all that is bad. Where what the Old Testament was promising would one day come would be a heart that is so changed and a presence of the Spirit of God that's so significant that we are able to move toward the unholy and it not contaminate us in the way that it once did. Um, and, and that's what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus saying it's not the things um, that are outside of a person or that we put in our mouths that make us unclean in Mark 7. It's the things that come out from within. It's the things that are our heart that are a problem, and the Gospels remedying that problem. Peter was still like, okay, holiness must mean no bacon, right? Um, poor Peter. But... Um, But Acts 10, rise, Peter, kill and eat, right? This change is happening now in this new covenant expression of it. And it's because of not the um, badness of that stuff, the goodness of this salvation that's now here and what it has the power to do. Um, And so with, with Jesus, remember our Meals with Jesus series, what was blowing the minds of the religious leaders of the day was that Jesus was going and eating and associating and talking with and touching and spending time with not only those who had um, things that would have made them unclean, but with the sinful riffraff of the day. And what's blowing their minds is that his, his holiness is now a contagious holiness, that it's his presence among them that changes them from unholy to holy by faith rather than how things were in the Old Covenant. And this, and then I'll, well, I guess I still have words to say, but Paul talks about this too, right? This isn't just for Jesus. Now, we are not Jesus, and so we do have to be wise and aware of how things affect us and relationships and just being wise of what can corrupt because of the twistedness of our hearts within, right? So we're not throwing it all out. But notice that even Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, um, because then you would need to go out of the world. He's like, that doesn't even make sense. Um, But going out of the world is what we often think holiness must mean, right? Instead, he says, he he talks about being very careful of someone who bears the name of brother and yet is justifying these behaviors unrepentantly. He's like, that's what actually uh, we need to be concerned about. And so we see that the Christian ethic um, is one of God, who has made us positionally holy and set us apart for His use, has us as useful to Him in this sacred or uh, secular and profane realm. Um, But we are being conformed to the image of Christ so that we're able to bear light to that and others become holy as the gospel goes forth and they encounter that holiness. So that's positional holiness. Also, we are progressively being made holy. This is what we most typically think of with sanctification, right? The process of being made holy. And this is where we're being conformed ethically to the image of Christ. Uh, it's that ethical transformation, it's this ongoing supernatural work of God that is making us more holy as justified sinners. Uh, it's rescuing us from the disease of sin and conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, empowering us to do good that we were never able to do before. Um, and that's what the imperatives and commands of Scripture are really all driving at. If you were to say, what are all the commands of Scripture getting at? How could we boil them down all down into one thing? The answer would be they're all saying, be holy as I am holy. Now, the be holy as I am holy is only because of the work of God that has positionally made us holy and is making us holy and will one day confirm us in that holiness. But Jen Wilkin um, says so beautifully, every admonition contained in Scripture can be reduced to this. Every warning, every law, every encouragement bows to this overarching purpose of this orientation toward making us holy. Um, And it's important to remember that this isn't just what we don't do. Remember how when we consider God's purity, it's not just that God doesn't do bad things, but it's also that he does what is good and loving and beautiful and right. And that's part of that purity. As we think about being holy, it's not just don't do bad things. It's that God is so working in us that he's giving us a heart to more deeply love God and more deeply love neighbor that we're able to act more and more holy toward them, like Jesus did. Um, Anytime we wonder what holiness in this life looks like, we can just look at the life of Jesus, right? Um And then that leads us to perfect holiness. We could say consummate holiness. Um, You could say it all kinds of ways, but perfect holiness is what is to come. This is what happens to us at glorification. This final phase of holiness is reached when Christ completes the process of salvation through his return. And when all his own will be like him is just amazing. Seeing him as he is, the perfect and glorious, holy Son of God. 1 John three two, Beloved, we are God's children now, positionally, right? I mean, that's an amazing thing. It's real. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not yet fully seen, but we know that when he appears, the Lord Jesus, we, will, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Um, that's that perfect holiness. And then what's amazing about it, and so encouraged I mean, first of all, just perfect holiness, it's like, wow, I'll, I'll take that any day. That sounds delightful. Um, but then to think that it's confirmed holiness, never to fall again. Um, when Adam and Eve were created, they were in unconfirmed creaturely holiness, right? They were able to sin, they were also able not to sin. Um, But then, because of the fall, still able to sin, but now unable not to sin. (laughs) Left to ourselves, we're unable not to sin, according to ourselves. With the work of redemption, we're still able to sin, but we're now able not to sin by the Spirit's work. But when we come to consummation, we enter this stage where we're not only able not to sin and not sinning all the time, but unable to sin, just as the Lord Jesus in his glorified state um, is not able to sin. That's amazing. Um, what's it like to never fear falling? Um, uh, ethically, especially. Okay. Okay. Um, Then we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about why this matters. And um, I gave it away. Um, Any comments or questions in particular on these things as we think about holiness and how it relates to us and to God? Anything that's not clear or fills you with wonder and awe? Um, And then we'll talk about why it matters. Yeah, Beth, um, Nevin will come to you in just a second. You talked about the holiness of God being the otherness and the pureness. yeah. And the otherness, is there any aspect of otherness that relates to us? Yeah. That's the question I've been thinking about all week um, and like how to say it. And that's what I started to write up there and thought it would take us on a tangent. But now you've justified my tangent. So thank you. Uh, the Lord knew what we needed. Um, I think so. I Because... So the otherness, we will not, holiness doesn't make us other like God is holy. But I think it's, it corresponds to this positional holiness that we have that as we think of humanity uh, in the context of all other creation as those bestowed with God's image, that image has us positionally set apart as holy in a way other things are not. So there's this otherness to us as image bearers. It's not the same otherness as God of creator over <laughs> creation, um, but there's an otherness to us that scripture speaks of, um, especially as the only creation um, bestowed as the image of God in that way. And so that's how I think of the correspondence to it. It gets us closer to this otherness um, that's related to our image bearing. I don't know if that's helpful at all, but yeah, so. Anything else? Yeah, Mark. Um, <clears throat> the whole Catholic Catholic infusion versus Protestant imputation, does that fall under the category of justification only or does it spill over into redemption? wow. <laughs> That's a great question. I'm just, the wow is um, picturing the essay of response to it. Um, can you say that one more time? Well, infusion versus imputation. Yeah. I know it affects justification, the viewpoint of justification. Yeah. But does it affect the viewpoint of redemption as well? It affects, in particular, the the understanding of salvation, or I'm mean, sorry, sanctification, um, and so so redemption is this bigger, broader term that includes justification and sanctification and this this work of restoration, um, and so in in Catholic understanding, the two become confused a bit in that. Um, our distinction of positional sanctification as being made holy, um, and that that F, anyhow, I'm not going to be able to do justice to that in this uh, amount of time. Pardon? Redemption encompassing everything, um, justification and sanctification. Yes, uh-huh, for sure. Um, Yes, sorry, I'm just not going to be able to handle it with enough nuance this morning, but I can point you in something that, that unpacks it great, greatly. But this is at the key of the Reformation and ongoing distinctions is how does being made holy, um, what, what part of salvation does that apply to and to what extent uh, is that saving? And so um, it's a good question. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's, um, yeah. Uh, great. Kevin has something. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how, if this process is cooperative, mm-hmm. it, you know, we know that it's a work of God in us, but to what extent is, um, you know, what's our What's our uh, effort in this process? Right, right. Yeah. Um, And so what we find in Scripture is it's amazing when we think about holiness, um, when we think about, yeah, particularly the, the commands to holiness. From the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, we find two things. We find God saying, I will make you holy, and God saying, be holy. We find God saying, circumcise your heart, and him saying, I will circumcise your heart. Uh, we find that even back in the Old Testament, and then, as we come um, to the to the New Testament, that continues in that what we would say is this like um, our sanctification, our becoming holy is always one hundred percent a a work of God. Um, apart from his work, we can do nothing. Um, but what we find is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. And so the ability to do that working. So we find all these commands to be holy and to live according to the worthiness of our calling. Um, we're commanded to do that. So in that sense, we, it is of us in that sense. But understanding that it's only because for it is God who works, that it is the working of God by the Holy Spirit, that enables us to do that. Um, And so we hold both of those things together always. Um, So completely a work of God, and it is our work in a horizontal think-about-it sense operation, yeah. Does that make sense? Good questions. Um, All right, well, let's talk for a few moments then about why this matters. Last week we mentioned holiness helps us understand our world and ourselves. Um, there's this orienting otherness of God, this orienting purity that we're actually craving but may not be realizing that God himself is that. Uh, last week we talked about how holiness makes us marvel at our salvation, this God who's so beyond us and so pure comes toward us, uh, in, in his holy love toward us is just amazing. Um, Two things to look at today, but the first is holiness provides the only reliable way of knowing ourselves. We are really good at not knowing ourselves and thinking we know ourselves. (laughs) That's part of the bummer of sin, the noetic effects, the mind effects of the fall, the distorted perspective. And one of the things we most distort is a perspective on our own hearts. Um, holiness helps us realize that. That is just how it is. <laughs> but there's good news. We're not left to say, oh, when I look inward or look around at other people, what is good? What should I be? Who am I? Who should I be? Um, The doctrine of God helps us understand ourselves because we're created in His image, right? And so to understand better what it means to be an image bearer is helping us understand who we are. And so, holiness, the holiness of God exposes who we are and what we need. (laughs) And first of all, it exposes who we are. As we hold up areas of our lives um, to God's holiness, it helps us see who we really are (laughs) presently, right? So if we hold up how we use our time to the holiness of God or how we act in our marriage or how we function as parents or how we think about and express our sexuality as we hold that up to God's holiness, we hold up our finances or our thoughts, our desires, our motivations, the words we say, as we hold those things up to holiness, it starts to make things clear, doesn't it? Um, and it sh- it's holding up both what he is not, the things that God doesn't do as a parent or as one in a loving relationship or as he creates and rests. And it also holds up what he positively does in love and care and work and rest and all those things. And so looking at God's holiness helps us better than understand what we find within. And it confronts our tendency toward okayness. I can't remember if it was Jen Wilkin or Paul Tripp who was mentioning okayness. Um, but I think it's a great word okayness. Because that's where we default, isn't it? Instead of looking to the creator whose image we are to reflect, what do we do as we try and evaluate things? We look around at other broken mirrors, broken and smudgy mirrors, which is what we all are, right? I mean, that's what the doctrine of the image of God is saying, that that mirror, it cracked and it's smudged, and it's not reflecting how it was supposed to reflect. It's still a mirror. It's still there. We are still showing glimpses of that image-bearing. But we look around at those, and we just need to find someone who has a smudgier or bigger crack than us. And we're like, I'm okay. I'm doing okay. <laughs> and and that's where we tend to go. Instead of looking at the light that the mirror is supposed to reflect, instead of looking at the sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, who is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1.3 says, and the exact imprint of his nature, um, and how Jesus is revealed in the word, which is also the mirror of the truth. And so holiness is what gives our bearing of who we are to be as image bearers. It helps us understand ourselves, and it, it shows us the sinfulness of sin. This is This is kind of all point one, just so you know, but just different aspects of it as I'm I'm talking about it. But holiness shows us the sinfulness of sin. And one of the things that holiness reminds us of is that it is impossible for any sin to only be horizontal. But again, when we go back to the world of okayness, that's usually how we measure sin, isn't it? How mad is someone about what I did? Did they even know? If they didn't notice, then it's not even a big deal. If they did, like, is it remediable or is it really bad? <laughs> you know, And so we're just looking at it at this horizontal level. The holiness of God is saying, wait a minute, the holy God created you to reflect his holy image, and that is the standard by which all of these things are measured. And therefore, every lack of conformity to that holiness is therefore a sin and falling short of what we were created for. Um, David in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now think of that. Horizontally, David had done horrific things. Um, The sexual assault of Bathsheba that took place because of his position as a king in taking her for himself and then the murder then of her husband. And if we wonder if that's really what David did, Nathan makes it really clear. It's this little lamb and you took it. You're the man. <laughs> like this, isn't, this wasn't some mutual reciprocal um, thing that was happening here. This is a horrible act of aggression. But David can at the end of the day say, hey, this is a part of what went down. Vertically, this was between me and God. And then also huge horizontal destruction. And so what does all this do? As holiness helps us see our sin, what does it do? It helps us confess and repent. And repentance is really a grace. It's not something that's bad. Paul Tripp says this, remember, you cannot confess what you do not grieve. You cannot confess what you do not grieve. You cannot grieve what you have not seen. If you haven't seen it and how bad it is, you're not going to grieve it. And if you're not grieving it, you can't be confessing it. And you cannot repent of what you have not confessed. Seeing, grieving, confessing, repenting is this chain that's all tied together. And what is the best way to kickstart that chain into the action that it requires? It's by seeing the holiness of God. And so he says, cry out for eyes to see and a heart to weep. And in weeping, may you find the joy of discovering mercies that are new once again. (laughs) You see, that's the grace of repentance is in it. It's God has always seen this lack of conformity. He's always seen this unholiness. And yet forgiveness and love and grace to continue are always there. And so um, this is how holiness provides a reliable way of knowing ourselves in relation to God. And therefore, holiness is really at the center of all we do. If you really just want to ask yourself, who am I to be in the world? Which Jen Wilkin says is a better question of what am I supposed to do? A lot of times we ask the question, what should I do? I think the Bible calls us to a question of who should we be? And the Bible answers that question by saying, holy like God. And then it says, the amazing thing is God is making you that. But this really leads us to point number two, because point number one can be pretty discouraging. Anyone here discouraged from that? It helps us see our sin. It helps us see, whoa, major chasm. It's not just comparing myself to you, which uh, still, you know, anyhow. Holiness, the holiness of God is the reason we will never outgrow grace. We will never outgrow grace. I didn't choose the name of the church. I think it's a great name. Grace, Bible, church. As long as we never outgrow grace. As long as we don't think of grace as something that just sinners out there need or something I got when I prayed a prayer. But if we think of grace as that posture of dependence toward God and receiving all of his blessing and goodness because of the work of Christ that we need all the time, then it's a fabulous thing. I've been asking myself as I've been studying this, why is it easy for me to set holiness aside? Why is it easy for me to not like that word, to be honest, if we're we're really being honest? I don't really like to hear it. Um, I think the reason for that, at least in my heart, and it may be different for you, is the word holiness is this powerful litmus test of how robust my gospel is. How robust the gospel is in my heart, because um, if the gospel is weak to me, then when I hear holiness, what do I hear? I hear all the condemnation of it. It is really bad news. <laughs> I'm unholy. I'm way down here. And it's not only horizontal, it's vertical. Like all that stuff we just talked about, that's really bad news. And so it's very, it can tempt us toward despair. Or I'll hear holiness when the gospel is small to me. I hear be holy as this call back to performance based works. And I'll just come up with a small holy list one that I can kind of attain. Don't say these things, don't watch these things. Like it's about this big compared to like the holiness of God. It's just a slice based on other cracked mirrors. So I can kind of feel okay at the end of the day. And maybe I'll start to feel proud because I'm keeping that little list pretty well. Be holy as I am holy. The holiness of God, the only way that can be something that we don't hate is if the gospel's big enough for us. And a lot of times it's not big enough. Because the only way that God can truly be as holy as he is and truly love and fellowship with and save unholy creatures like me is if he really loves me enough to do that, that he would send his son to make me holy. (laughs) Uh, It's only if the work of the gospel is so great that that could ever be something possible. And so what happens is um, it leads to a paradox, right? And many of you who've lived a Christian life for a while understand this. Growing in holiness often feels like increased unholiness, doesn't it? The longer we're a Christian, the more unholy we become aware of. more unholiness within that we become aware of, don't we? Um, the closer you get to the Lord, the more aware of how unholy you are. It's, and it's because of deviation, right? Deviation is like, hey, you've got this point, and how far is this point from that? Like, how far are all these points from that point? If that point is not the average of a good human, but if that point is the holiness of God, <laughs> then all of life is just like, oh, wow, that's a big derivation <laughs> and deviation from that. Um, and so it's part of experience that, experiencing that process. But the wonder of the gospel is Jesus paid for every deviation from the perfect holiness of God. All of it. Not just the ways we did bad things but also all those good things we didn't do as image bearers that we were created to do. And so growing in holiness is then, it's increased awareness of your unholiness, but it's also increased dependence. And Paul Tripp says this, the grace of this Holy One doesn't take dependent people and make them independent, but rather it takes independent people, which is what we think we are, and produces in them a deeper and more willing dependency. If we are called to be holy as God is holy, our need for grace will never end in this life. We need it more and more every day. And so let me just um, let you hear Paul Tripp's personal experience. I think he writes it so well. And then we'll close by singing Only a Holy God um, which I think is just a great expression of worship this way. Listen to what Paul Tripp says. I am thankful that I have grown in grace. I'm thankful that areas of sin have been defeated in my life. I'm grateful that every day, because of the zeal of God's grace, I am not the man I once was. But I am miles and miles away from being holy in every way all of the time. Today I am more deeply aware of my sin than I was when I confessed it for the first time. I take comfort that there is biblical evidence that I'm not alone. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, the longer you live in the presence of God's holiness, the more you become aware of the depth and extent of your sin, the more dependent you are on God's grace, and the more you are amazed by his patience. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace is is the heartbeat of a Christian when we consider the holiness of God. Doesn't that make you crave the worship service and like communion and being reminded that Jesus' body and blood were given for our unholiness? Um, that's great. All right. Um, this song that Mark sent out and that, that many may have heard, it's just a great expression of the things that we've been learning about. Musicians, why don't you come on up? I know we're running here on time, so if, if you end up needing to pop out, but it only takes... A few minutes to sing this and um, I know it's newer to us but it it captures the otherness and the purity of God and calls us to this wondrous response of just worshiping him for his holiness so they'll lead us in this why don't we stand and you can sing along if you're familiar with it don't feel you have to and you can just worship with it I'll just close in prayer. Our God, we praise you for your holiness, and we thank you for your grace. We pray that you would help us to do this all through the work of Jesus and by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.